This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. Because life's just better with a book. Welcome to the Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore from the Centre for Public Christianity. It is our 20th episode. Having a very, very Aussie episode. In fact, I think we need some Aussie music. Natasha, how about this? <laughs> yeah, that is more like it. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to look at Aussie books. We have a very special guest interview with legendary Australian singer, songwriter, poet, musician, and author Paul Kelly. He's got a new book of poetry out. It's called Love is Strong as Death. I've been buried in it, and we'll be talking to him about that. Natasha Moore has picked up The Yield by Tara June Winch, an Indigenous story of a Wiradjuri elder facing his death and the return of his granddaughter, who's been living overseas. She's also been reading the first book in a popular Australian mystery series, A Few Right-Thinking Men by Solari Gentile. The 10th book in the series is out in March 2020, and we're going to discuss our favourite Aussie books Ever. Ever. Big call, Natasha. <laughs> big call. Big you call. sure you want to do this? Well, I mean, it's not as big a call as it should be for me because, honestly, I haven't read as much Australian fiction as I would like. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. And, look, if you'd like to join in the conversation or share your thoughts, we would love to hear from you. Email bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. But first, let's hear from The Yield by Tara June Winch. Read by Tony Briggs on audible.com. Sea, Morian. We never went to the sea. All my adult life, it seemed it was only the white families that went on holidays to the sea. Even with my ancestors, we didn't go to the beach. We did travel high above the seas, but I never felt the surf crash on my legs like I've seen on the TV. I'm going to leave the world having never gone to the sea. And that's okay by me. There are plenty of things I haven't done, and it didn't make my life any worse. I've never taken an aeroplane trip. I've never gone to another country overseas. Not like August. I've never lain under the house or climbed on the roof of Prosperous, or seen an opera in real life or learned to play a musical instrument. I can't complain about this life. I'm a time traveller after all. If I could have changed things, though, I would have. I would have been a boy with a sister, and a mummy, and maybe a daddy even, and we would have taken trips to the Murian, as far as I time travel. I never have come across my own mummy and daddy. That's from The Yield by Tara June Winch. It's the story of a Wiradjuri elder, Albert Poppiganda Windy, who is facing his death, and of his granddaughter who returns to her home country after living overseas. In the book, Albert records the Wiradjuri words he wants to pass on and in doing so, shares much of the way of life he wants to pass on to his granddaughter. This is a book about Indigenous language, storytelling and identity. G'day, Natasha. Welcome. Hi. So what is the meaning behind the title, The Yield? Well, there is a moment in the story in Albert's dictionary that he draws together, which is one of the kind of interwoven threads of this novel, um, where he talks about the English word yield, um, that it's kind of a reaping, like a, 
a taking from the land, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and But that it has other meanings in terms of yielding, like bowing to something. Um, so I reading that bit, I did have that feeling of this is a significant moment that I need to internalise in order to understand this novel. But to be honest, it wasn't um, like... Was it to me that significant? For okay. like, so maybe I totally didn't, <laughs> didn't get, get it. it. <laughs> okay. But um, I mean, it's a it's a good title and it's a nice um, book cover and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I, like I, I suppose if there's one obvious difference between the way Aboriginal people manage the land and the way that you know white Western civilization has managed the land is that we have taken, taken, taken yeah. from the land. And so the yield kind of sums up that, doesn't it? That idea of taking things from the land. Yeah, because there is a kind of the yield, what you get. And there's yielding, like giving mm. in. Yeah, now that you that double meaning it, that does kind of yeah, <laughs> represent the relationship. Yeah, okay. But cool. she doesn't overdo it, is what I'm saying here. Okay. <laughs> well, let's start with the main characters. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, so there's actually three stories interwoven here. Um, the main character is August Gondawindi. So she's um, about 30 years old. Uh, she's a Wiradjuri girl. Um, so she grew up on kind of the western plains of New South Wales, um, what are fictionalised as Massacre Plains is the name of the place. But she ran away in her teens. She's been um, living in London for maybe the last decade and she hasn't been home at all. And her grandfather dies um, and so she finally kind of comes home and has to deal with, you know, some of the – demons of her past. Um, So we find out that her older sister, Jeddah, actually disappeared when they were still children and nobody Mm. knows what happened to her. Um, So she's dealing with that trauma. Um, There's a whole bunch of kind of intergenerational trauma going on in her family and obviously they're wider kind of people. Um, So interwoven with her own personal story and struggles and the kind of poverty and um, trauma that she's been dealing with, um, you have this dictionary, as you were saying, from her that her grandfather has been putting together. So he's this kind of absolute rock of the family who's just died. Uh, He's a really kind of warm, lovely character, actually, um, in spite of everything that he's been through and seen in his long life. Um, And you know how kind of... um, when they do something like, oh, this is a dictionary, like this is a you – ha- you have the chapters of the story and then you have something that's a bit like literary and maybe it's hard to get through. And I kind of thought the dictionary sections would be like that, but actually I really enjoyed them. Mm. Um, and he weaves his own kind of life story into these words, these um, Wiradjuri words mm. uh, that he's explaining what they are. So given that this Wiradjuri language is, is peppered throughout the book, did it give you a stronger sense of – the Wiradjuri culture? Definitely. Um, And he kind of – there's this sort of mystical thread to his life where he's kind of been visited by ancestors and absorbed a lot of um, culture that he didn't get as a member of the Stolen Generations, um, that he didn't get directly Mm. uh, in his upbringing. Um, But there's just a real – you know, there's kind of the anger and the pain associated with that loss, um, but there's also a lot of uh, joy and beauty in the way that he describes all that. Um, And even, you know, it's not just the actual Aboriginal words. It's also, I think, um, Winch's prose. There's something very, um, 
you know, in the way that her characters speak and the way that Albert writes particularly. There are these kind of cadences that are um, that seem deeply Aboriginal mm. and at the same time have been fused with a very kind of literary, lyrical feel. Okay. So there's a – like the prose is quite unusual yep. um, in a lot of places and I think very – Interesting. And striking. And yeah. 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 Well, Very I, Australian. I don't know if I told you this, but in the notes she reveals that the mission in the book is based on Warren Gester mission, which is literally yeah. three minutes up the road from where I grew up. Like it's, oh, it's a short walk. Well, so and this is and the third story, right? So you have August, you have her grandfather, and then you have this, on, this long letter that's interspersed throughout from a missionary, a Lutheran German missionary so who set up Greenleaf, this mission. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so his story, so that's kind of going back another kind of generation or two and seeing what's happening to the Wiradjuri people in the 19th century um, and his kind of efforts but sort of doomed efforts to yeah. try and uh, help them try to make space for them to have a better life than they're currently having at that point um, mm. and the, you know, violence that they're facing at the hands of the townspeople and everything. So Well, yeah, and, and I think at the river she refers to the Murrumbee River, which I'm assuming mm. is kind of, you know, code for the Murrumbidgee, yes. which is where yeah. this property is. And Did you get a strong feeling for the place from the book? You really do. I unlike you don't have the personal connection with the place I you know <laughs> to be honest I didn't look at the map and as I was reading it I mostly thought we were in Queensland and it wasn't until <laughs> I got to the end that I looked at the map and was like oh this is western New South Wales yeah um but you know I'm very uh ignorant of the geography of our own country and <laughs> you're a city so, girl let's just put it that way yes I am a city girl um so I thought it was beautiful um, and her sense of kind of connection to this place and to her childhood. Mm. Um, so at the same time, I was like, this is quite foreign to me. Her upbringing is very different to mine. Mm. But then there were these real points of connection, you know, partly just in the way that you remember things, mm. What like that kind of the vibe you have about particular recurrent incidents of your childhood um, and how that stays with you. You know, there's one point where she talks about her and her sister getting up on Saturday morning and watching Agro's Cartoon Connection. Yeah. And I was just – and the way she described the whole experience of, like, early morning cartoons as yeah. a kid, I was like, this is such a shared moment. You know, something that I've forgotten, like, haven't thought about for decades. Yeah. Um, but that even though we – me and this fictional character are very yeah. different people with very different backgrounds. Um, I really had that sense of um, like authentic. Yeah. This is what childhood and reflecting on your childhood is like. Oh, that's cool. So does the book also have something to say about the power of words, given that it's got this whole dictionary component to it? I think words and memory and culture uh, mm. And particularly, I suppose, the way that words are bound up with all the rest of it, mm. um, that words are kind of these vessels that carry uh, not just kind of meaning, not just the ability to communicate, but are bound up with like how you actually conceive of the world and other people and how you relate to them. Mm. So, you know, that's made most obvious in kind of the dictionary sections with Albert. Mm. But I think... The even the way that the different characters speak, you have um, August's kind of relationship with her aunties um, and her grandmother, um, who are these very strong women who've had like 
quite difficult lives. Um, but the way that they talk to one another and the, the kind of warmth of their words and the strength of their bonds really comes through in the book in a way that I think that was one of my favourite things about it was the, the aunties mm. um, and their love for August and their um, refusal to put up with any nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> well, a friend of mine read this book and absolutely loved it and was very moved by it. Would you highly recommend it as well? I think it is a brilliant book. I think it's an important book mm. um, for people to read and it really opened up um, layers of experience and of the Aboriginal experience, particularly for me, um, that I think more and more Australians should have that kind of internal access to, to be able to, you know, imaginatively enter into that. Um, but it is quite you know, traumatic and it's not a super easy read. Okay. Um, so it's not so, one that you could you could sort of go, oh, I love this so much. It's no, wonderful. It's more like. Yeah, my reaction is different to that. that yeah. I do think it's a great book, um, but I think you have to be up for it. Okay. Yeah. So I have been reading Paul Kelly's new book, Love is Strong as Death. This was a birthday present to me, actually. It's a collection of poetry, and I will share my thoughts on it. But first, let's hear from the man himself. I caught up with Paul Kelly and asked him where he discovered his love of poetry. Yeah, yeah, I, I sort of um, fell in love with poetry at, at, at school. In fact, we did Ode to a Nightingale at school. So that's a poem that's been with me you know, since I was 16, so for a lot, nearly, 50, nearly 50 years. Mm. Um, I always loved Shakespeare, and, of course, his, his plays were written in poetic form. Um, yeah, so poetry's been a companion to me for, yeah, ever since. Yeah. Ever since my teens. And it's also informed my songs, so, you know, lines from poems have sort of snuck into some of my songs right from the start. Well, I, come from a, I came from a tradition of folk music, I guess. When I first started playing, I was playing in folk clubs, and in that kind of music, a lot there's a lot of passing around between songs, images and phrases and stories. We'll move around from song to song or, you know, there's various versions of the one song. So it's it, everything's a lot more more fluid. So I come from that tradition where you, you pick things up from other sources and, and pass them on. Yeah. Well, what I mean, it's probably hard to put into words, but what is it that you love about poetry? Why do you return to it? What is it about poetry that speaks to you? Well, a lot of poems are short, so you know they're things you can read in a in a in between other things. So you know, wait, waiting at the bus or standing in a queue or waiting for a, a friend. I mean, that's uh, I've always sort of gravitated towards short the short form. I guess that's why I became a a songwriter and not a a novelist. Mm-hmm. But um, I also like the way that poetry. Uh, I like the con- the concision of poetry and how it condenses compresses language into into something memorable. In fact, one of the best defini- definitions I've heard of poetry is po- poetry is just memorable speech. So, and that's that's why it, it probably arose in the first place amongst hu- humans is that it was a way to pass on knowledge in a memorable form. So, all, all the all our first literature was was poetry. It was you know from Ho- Homer, Homer and his his great epics were sung. And, and had regular rhythm, so they were easy to remember. Mm. Poetry's always been something to remember, and I, I, I find it sort of fun to try and 
remember poems. Yeah. I just want to talk a bit about the new book of poetry, Paul, Love is Strong as Death. Now, my husband gave me this for my birthday in December. I was absolutely thrilled. I'm loving it, really enjoying it. But, I, you know, it just seems so such a tricky uh, work to put together. How on earth did you decide what to include? So it's a good question, and um, I sort of made it up as I went along in a way. Um, it was not my idea. It was, I was approached by my publisher, Nikki Krista, at Penguin Random House. She said, oh, because every now and then they say, do you want to do another book? I said, oh, I don't have an idea for another book. And then she said, what about putting, you know, putting a book together of your favourite poems? And I thought that was like a really a good idea and a, a fun one. So I said, yes. The first part was really easy where I just sort of wrote a list of all my favourite poems, so maybe 50 or something. Mm. And then I thought, well, I, sh- I need to sort of discover more. You know, I-, I was aware that every person has their own biases and, and uh, I guess, um, blind spots and also gaps in their knowledge. Not that I wanted to go and, you know, do a course in poetry, but it- I-, I ended up, you know, reading a lot more poems, discovering poems, asking friends about poems, to recommend mm. poems. And so once I started, I started with the, you know, those core 50 that I, I knew straight away. But then uh, I had the, I guess I had the luxury of time to, I had, you know, six months just to, to read poetry and, and, and pick my poems. I didn't try to make it too uh, formal or, you know, go with any particular style. I just picked the poems that I loved and, they range from you know three thousand year old poems to to poems written last year. Mm. So it's and from they come from all different countries as well. Yeah, I so, mean you, you sort of decided though not to include song lyrics, um, which you know might might be a bit of a surprise since you're a musician. Uh, but then you couldn't leave out Archie Roach's uh, "Took the Children Away." You sort of made a note about that that you felt that had to go in. Why did you make an exception for that song? Well, I think I think it's one of the most important Australian songs from from uh, the last century. Um, I think when when that song came out, it it um, told the story of um, Aboriginal experience in Australia that a lot of the, the wider uh, uh, population didn't know. So I thought it was a, a breakthrough song in many ways, mm. and it's, it's it's a poetic song. I mean, I wouldn't have put it in unless it was also stood on the page as poetry. Mm. Um, I also chose a Kev Carmody song, which I know was, was actually written as a poem first and and then put to music, which, which he does with quite a few of his songs. So there is a little, there is obviously a blurred line between songs and poems. You know, mm. Danny Boy was a poem first and then it became a song. And of course, the melody is so famous that you can never read that poem without singing the melody. So... I included Danny Boy too because it was a poem first. But it, it, it is a blurry line, so I, I, I thought, well, I can cross that line, you know, a couple of times. But to open up the whole book to to songs, because there are many, many songs, uh, you know, stand stand as stand up as poetry, even when you take the music away. So yeah, what about your, your own songs? Like, do you consider them to be poetry? They're they're um, they're they're a form of poetry, but they're not written. Some of my songs are written as poems first, and I put put music to them. But most of the time, they start with music and the melody and and sounds, and then gradually I, I get words to fit those sounds. So I think of them as songs. And you could you could say songs are a form of poetry. I mean, all these things are pretty de- debatable. Yeah. I think it's really good to say poems out loud, even. 
poems that you know well because saying saying them out loud makes you experience them in a different way and, and brings the brings the sounds of the poems more strongly into focus. Hmm. You've also included a, a number of passages from the Bible, um, which shows up in your music as well. Um, you know, uh, remember Nothing But a Dream, that album, there was a few uh, Love is the Law and, and things which drew on mm-hmm. Bible passages. Do you still read the Bible often and do you have, like, a, I guess, a favourite passage that you go back to? Uh, I read the Bible from time to time. Of course, I haven't read all the Bible. In fact, I wouldn't have probably even read up to half of it. Um, there's lots of the Bible I haven't read, but uh, yeah, I go back to the Bible sometimes and just try to work through parts of it I haven't read. But uh, I mean, those the first um, few books of the Bible. I mean, a lot of the Bible stories that, that people know are in, in um, you know, Genesis, Exodus, and uh, Moses and Kings, and um, I guess that was sort of imprinted into me growing up Catholic and going to church and going to a Catholic school and and just the Bible was part part of life. And then, you know, probably la- later in my teens, I discovered the King James Bible, which, you know, which is put together in 1601. And it, it's, it really is, a, I guess, the foundation of a lot of English literature. It has beautiful cadence and sort of majesty in the language. So as I grew older, I, I fell in love with the Bible as a, as a book of literature, fell in love with the language of it. And um, that sort of joined in with sort of just knowing those stories as well. Yeah, sure. And naturally you've included in your book quite a bit of Shakespeare and, like, as you said, best-known English and American poets, but also Aussies. So before I let you go, I wanted to ask you if people haven't read much poetry now obviously they can pick up your book and find a whole you know a whole heap of uh, different styles of poetry there but what do you think is a good place to start if people like poetry huh? why would I read that where would you send them to to sort of get a taste for what you love about poetry and you know my book is I guess an anthology and I think yeah. that those kind of books are a good place to start because it's a great variety you can discover a New poets there. If you don't like a poem, you just turn the page and you're not stuck with the <laughs> same same author. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the other thing to realise, helpful to understand, is that a lot of poems won't sort of strike a chord with you, and so you shouldn't sort of shouldn't feel worried about. Oh, I don't I don't get that, or it doesn't mean anything to me. I, I mustn't be any good at reading poetry. I, I would list as one of my favourite poets. W. H. Auden, yeah. but most of his poetry is unclear to me, opaque to me, and I, I would only, I only like, I guess, a, a small fraction of his of his entire work. But I would still call him one of my favourite poets. It's kind of a relief to hear you say that because when I've read some of his stuff, I've kind of gone, "Huh, I don't get it." <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but there's enough. There's so many poems there that poems there that I do love, and then because I know that, you know. He's written so many poems I love. It does, from time to time, I go back to those other poems of his that I've never got and, and uh, you know, chip away at them, I guess. Sometimes yeah. it's good to go back to difficult poems. I also think we were also taught probably badly at school and I think there's still that thing in school these days, especially with, you know, exams hanging over students' heads, is that you have to wrap the poem up in a little parcel. Every poem has to have an, a meaning analysis and wrap up that meaning and regurgitate it in an exam paper. And I think that's very reductive. I think 
cons should be experienced first and not and there shouldn't be this attitude to I've got to understand this poem. A lot of poems, some of the Jeremy Hopkins, for instance, you just, just the sound of the poems that that caught that caught me first. This incredible rhythm and alliteration and assonance, or, or you know, these these sounds recurring within within the the lines of the poem, um, rhyming within the line, and so on. And it's just some of Jeremy Hopkins' poetry is quite ecstatic and. You might say sort of mad, but yeah. but it say it out loud, and it's like this, this beautiful experience. You can just experience it without trying to understand it. So I think I, I just encourage people to have have fun with poetry. If you find a poem not speaking to you, turn the page, find find another poet, mm. and and not to be afraid of afraid of it. That's the Australian recording artist, Paul Kelly, talking about his love of poetry and his new poetry anthology, Love is Strong as Death. Uh, Do you ever read poetry, Natasha? Well, I mean, I actually have a PhD in poetry. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Um, <laughs> you mean keeping that, that one in? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> How many PhDs do you have? <laughs> it's just that one. <laughs> um, I mean, not the writing of it. You know, I was like, it was about Victorian poetry. Um, but that being said, I actually, even though I always worked on poetry, like I've always studied poetry, mostly when I read, I read fiction. I mm. read prose I don't read, read that much poetry and but this Paul Kelly anthology mm. that he's put out um so this is not his poetry this is other people's that's right yeah poetry I feel as though everybody is reading it I just keep hearing about it from lots of different angles and so it, it kind of it warms my heart to hear that people are reading poetry because it's not a thing that necessarily happens that much is that a yes. new thing no, for you? I think it's great. I, I've always loved poetry, but I guess I haven't read a lot of it since I was younger. And I think what's nice about a collection like this from someone like Paul Kelly is it just makes it accessible. And mm. his attitude towards the poetry is so relaxed. It's not like you have to sit there and analyse it. He's like, oh, just let it wash over you, you know, as he was saying in, in the conversation. So I think that really opens it up that it, it's freeing to be able to go, you know what, I don't like that. Just read yeah. another one. Yeah. And well, this isn't the sort of book I imagine that. Are you reading it cover to cover or are you dipping in and out? I'm doing both. Okay. So, you know, since I was given it, I have now and then just pick it up and read a few random things. But I'm also, I have actually bookmarked as well the part that I'm reading intentionally. Uh-huh. So while every now and then I pick it up and just read something random, I'm also wanting to read it. And I've discovered, Natasha, a good way to read this book is actually out loud. So mm. I'm trying to read one after dinner to the family. Oh, yeah. yeah poetry is for the ear. Oh, it is. And there's stuff like Shakespeare in here and mm. there's Bible verses as well. Mm. And there's stuff that's really familiar, stuff you did at school, like La Belle Dame Sans Merci or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Keats and O to a Nightingale and all that kind of stuff that you did. But there's also some really strange, <laughs> modern, sexy, working class. You know, I mean, there's literally <laughs> every type of poem that you could imagine in here. So, any favorites? Oh, gosh, any favourites? Well, I have to say I've been someone that's always heard people rave about rave about W.H. Auden and I've always struggled. He's written so much and a lot of it I can't understand. So I think what's nice with a collection like this is having stuff actually picked out for you. Mm. Um, so that He's done the hard work. He's done <laughs> the hard work, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, look, I, I have to say 
I, I really love reading Shakespeare. Hmm. Yeah. Classic. I know. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> so boring to say, isn't it? Oh, what else? I'll pick something else that yeah. I didn't What's know a new before. discovery for a you? New dis- well, here's something beautiful. Yehuda Amichai, the, he's Israeli poet. Mm-hmm. It's translated by Ted Hughes, and he wrote a little verse called Advice for Good Love. And um, I particularly loved, after he gives the advice for good love, he gives the advice for bad love, which he says, an advice for bad love. With the love left over from the previous one, make a new woman for yourself. Then with what is left of that woman, make again a new love and go on like that until nothing remains. Wow. I thought that was profound. Mm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fun book to have, and I think it's a book that will last you a lifetime. Lovely. Mm. So Bring on more it. poetry. <laughs> yeah. All right, now let's get to the controversial bit, Natasha. What is your favourite Australian book ever? <sighs> Look, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, I The one that springs to mind, and I feel a little bit bad about it because it's so recent, mm. but also I love it so much, mm. is Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton. Uh, I'll fight you for it. <laughs> <laughs> we can share a favourite Australian novel. Look, right? you can have it because you haven't read much Australian literature. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you going for if you're not going for Trent? Uh, well, I, you know, it's funny. I did think I love the Rosie Project, but um, it's mm. not quite on that par. I think I would have to go with Jasper Jones by Craig Sylvie. Yeah, I haven't read that one. So. Oh, that is so good. You're safe good. there. <laughs> it is so good. Everybody says that. It really is. Mm. So in our family, my sister read it in like two days and then passed it on to my other sister and she read it in two days and they both were like, oh, it was awesome. So I'm like, okay, I just picked yeah. up and then I read okay. it in three days. Okay, I will do that. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> well, you better justify your Trent Dalton. Why did you pick that? Uh, I think... It is a book that is just so full of joy. Mm. And I think that's quite rare and quite difficult to pull off. And because it's not, um, it's in no way shallow. It's actually very, you know, gritty. And um, uh, I think it was (laughs) confession time um, because I know that everyone loves Tim Winton. um, But when I finally, not so long ago, sat down to read Cloud Street, Mm. I was like, I can see how this is incredibly brilliant. But also... I'm, I don't really like it. Mm. Um, like it, there's something a bit grim or depressing. That's how I felt reading Breath. And mm. yeah, sure. And I feel like Boy Swallows Universe is a bit like Winton in terms of the grit and um, the writing, rings yeah, and miracle and stuff. Yeah, mm. and yet joy. Yeah. So that's what that's what I love about it. Good choice. Yeah. All right. So let's move on. Our next book is a murder mystery. We can't go too long without doing a murder mystery. That's right. They're hard to avoid. (laughs) All right. This is an Australian historical murder mystery, A Few Right Thinking Men by Solari Gentile. This is set in the Sydney of the 1930s, the story of a gentleman artist who finds himself in the thick of a mystery after his uncle has been murdered. A Few Right Thinking Men is the first book in a series which has already spawned nine books and the tenth one, A Testament of Character, is due out in March. I actually met Solari Gentil at a writers' festival in the Snowies a few years ago, oh. and um, Natasha, you won't find a nicer person. Oh. Um, but I actually don't know mu- that much about her. So, can you tell us a little bit about the author? 
Well, I mean, you've actually met her in person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly, like, in her bio, she comes across as really fun and interesting. So she um, was born in Sri Lanka, um, but she grew up in Brisbane and studied astrophysics and became a lawyer and then kind of quit law because she just wanted to write stories. Um, and I, like I think her already. she lives on, like, a farm in the Snowy Mountains and, like, grows truffles and like, <laughs> well it was actually at the snowy mountains readers writers oh, festival well, that, that i met sense. her it all and fits in she place. was just <laughs> lovely and very relaxed and excited about writing and yeah so this is the first book in this mystery series known as the roland sinclair mysteries so who is roland sinclair roland sinclair you know i think he is probably the australian lord peter whimsey from That's the Dorothy Sayers from novels. From Dorothy Sayers, yeah. yeah. Okay. So he's the, you know, gentleman detective. So Roland Sinclair is, um, you know, a young man in uh, set in the 1930s. Um, he is one of the sons of a very, very wealthy, prominent Australian family. Um, you know, they have uh, cattle and whatever um, rich Australian families have. Um, and he's the youngest of three sons. Uh, the middle one was killed in World War One, and the eldest is very kind of respectable and conservative and, you know, the scion of the family, whereas Roland is an artist and um, a bit of a kind of bohemian and his brother's a bit horrified by his lifestyle. <laughs> um, so he's very kind of, you know, gentlemanly, gentlemanly yeah. but also like very upright good guy. Okay. Um, but he's, you know, a lot more bohemian than his respectable family. Nice. Mm. Um, so... Uh, what kind of picture does she paint of Sydney in the 1930s? Like, what's the historical and political context for this yeah, mystery? Yeah, so this is all really fun. I thought it's because, you know, I actually don't know that much about this period of Australian history. Um, and she's obviously done her research, both in terms of kind of the geography of Sydney, like what's where at that time and so it's quite fun being like oh oh that's what this suburb is like at this point and oh you have to go all the way out here to go to like Taramara or something <laughs> um and uh but the political and social context I mean it's the depression there's a lot of kind of unrest and unease um you know a bunch of people who are kind of into communism you know the communist party is kind of having these meetings um but also there's kind of a right-wing reaction to that. There's a new guard and an old guard, these kind of semi-secret mm. militias and stuff, people who are like, oh, we have to make sure that New South Wales is held by the good guys and um, mutterings of overthrowing the government and that kind of thing. Wow. So there's kind of this polarisation and, um, you know, populism and all this kind of this quite tense political atmosphere where reading it, I was very like, huh, this, so is, this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Is this? <laughs> Oh, right, yeah, as in today. <laughs> and is this around the time the Harbour Bridge was being opened? Yeah, so that actually features in the novel and is very fun. It's kind of almost the climax of the novel is the opening. And as you'll remember yeah. from your history, um, that someone charges and, you know, cuts the ribbon before the premiere. De Groot or someone? Um, yeah, Francis de Groot. So yeah. Francis de Groot does feature in this novel. <laughs> How funny. Um, so what did you enjoy about the book? I really enjoyed the history um and i really enjoyed the 
Sydney and, you know, they also go to Yass, like into the country yeah. um, settings. Mostly, though, I think I enjoyed Roland and his friends. So he's kind of, you know, he's got the family home in Sydney, the mansion in Wallara. Um, but it's become a bit of an artist colony. He just kind of lets people stay there and, you know, his poet friends and his artist friends. And he's kind of in love with this girl, Edna, who's a sculptor, sculptress. I suppose. Time. <laughs> right. um, yes. And I like how they relate and their banter and all that kind of thing. So the characters are quite fun. Mm. And where does it sit in the you know broad spectrum of crime fiction? I mean, you did already reference Dorothy Sayers, but what else would you compare it to? Well, interestingly, you know, there is a murder, but it doesn't read so much like a murder mystery as i was expecting mm-hmm. it's nothing like the like the locked room mystery you know where you're like okay here are the set of suspects and i know one of them must have done it and it's always the least likely person like it's more the kind of the rich cultural um, context and the murder kind of plays into all that so the plot is like a bit less figuring out who done it mm. And that's just kind of one of the elements really in a broader sort of context. Well, it's interesting that you've said that because the one review that I read said that while the book was very charming, the mystery almost takes a back seat to the yeah, setting. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Okay, interesting. Mm. So would you recommend it then? I would recommend it to those who are interested in kind of the history and in reading something local. Mm. Like I think it is, um, it's good fun. Um, it's easy to read. <laughs> okay, that's cool. And the fact that the tenth book is out suggests there's obviously a An good appetite. readership. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I do want to know what happens next with Roland and oh. his friends. Oh, good. <laughs> so maybe we'll do another review down the track. Um, I'm quite interested in that one, Natasha. I have to say, it's quite tempting to me, actually. I Be- can lend it to you. Good airplane read, I think. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I hope you have enjoyed episode 20, our Aussie, Aussie, Aussie episode of the Hope Book Club. Thanks for sticking with it this far. In this episode, we reviewed Paul Kelly's poetry anthology, Love is Strong as Death, The Yield by Tara June Winch, and A Few Right-Thinking Men by Solari Gentil. We'd love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and uh, comments. Email bookclub at hopemedia.com.au. And thanks for listening to the 20th episode, the Aussie edition of the Hope Book Club, because life's just better with an Australian book. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.